all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus race. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Attention all Star Wars party animals, get ready to have your socks knocked off because it is time to rock and roll. I am Kyle, your supercharged and fun-loving host, and I'm about to unleash the craziest, most electrifying audio show in the entire universe, Star Wars Audio Archives. What's up, cosmic thrill seekers floating through the vastest of space? I hope you are ready for a hyperdrive ride because we're about to crank it up to Fun Factor 11. Brace yourself for an episode that will leave you cheering and begging for more. Are you ready to jump into part six of Red Harvest? Then let's go. It took Scabrous less than 30 seconds to flush the wound on his face with saline. Start an IV on himself and activate the auto-diagnosis cuff. Everything was exactly where he'd left it. He worked steadily without the slightest hesitation. The swift and practiced smoothness of his movements betraying none of the anger that sat in his chest like a scalding red lump of coal. There was a faint electronic beep from his right wrist, denoting the 30-second mark. He checked the cuff's glowing blue readout and saw that it was still calibrating the initial blood sample. Meanwhile, the girl, the Jedi scum, was already gone. Scabrous hadn't seen her leave, but he'd known, of course, that she would try to flee the second she got the chance. That was a given. No matter... The Orchid had done its job, and there would be plenty of time to catch up with the Jedi later. She would serve her purpose well enough when the time came. At the moment, he had more pressing matters to attend to. He continued working, holding his emotions carefully in check. Critical thinking was what had gotten him this far with the project. His mind was an engine of clinical detachment and an absolute unwavering commitment to do whatever was necessary to make the experiment a success. The emotions that fueled that engine, ambition, boundless rage, a natural depraved indifference toward anything except himself, lay carefully insulated in the dark vessels of his heart, where they would not be permitted to distract him from his goal. And yet, all the same, he hated her hated her with the brutal, grinding hate of the entire Sith war machine. Hated her with the blazing intensity of 10,000 dying suns, this Jedi whose orchid was the linchpin upon which everything would revolve and whose very presence here would allow him to see the project through to fruition. And it was good to know that hate was there, where he could access it whenever he wanted like a fine wine to be decanted and sipped sparingly. It would be good to find her and to... Well, to finish things. Hestizo Trace would die screaming, and he would live forever. The one-minute mark. Scabrous flicked his eye down to the auto-analysis unit. The blue numbers pulsed red... He frowned. Just a little. Initial contamination levels were higher than expected. Peaks and waves that the system was already re-diagnosing in order to isolate the specific antigen and lay the groundwork for the next step. He couldn't afford to wait any longer. The hemodialysis pump was portable by design, 
a flat shoulder pack that held six liters of fresh blood and a vacuum tube system. Sliding these straps over his shoulder, Scabrous attached the pump to the IV in his right arm and started the first infusion. A steady feeling of warmth crept up through his arm, filling his chest, loosening the tension, allowing him to breathe more deeply. He set the counters. At the current rate, the blood supply would last Tim six hours, assuming things didn't change dramatically in the meantime. Scabrous bypassed the turbo lift, crossing directly toward the shattered window, casting his gaze out at the broken, snow-stricken terrain spreading out into the horizon. A feeling of confidence stirred within him, bringing with it a renewed sense of purpose. This was his academy, his planet. Nobody knew it as well as he did. There was nowhere that the Jedi could hide that he could not find her. Without a moment's hesitation, he sprang forward and jumped out the broken viewport. He cleared it easily, plunging out into the night, knifing downward through the air, using the force to guide his descent a hundred meters down. At the base of the tower, he hit the ground, running. His mind was humming now, his body inhaling doses of fresh blood, sucking it down like pure oxygen, feeding muscle and brain. Activating his comlink, he brought it to his ear and waited for the voice on the other end to respond. Query? Yes, my lord? Activate all outer perimeter barriers and all quadrants, Scabrous told it. Target is Hestizo Trace, the Jedi. Scan the lab for DNA and pheromone sample. He paused, but only for a second, the wind blasting over him. Use whatever means necessary, but I want her alive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hestizo? Zoe was still running when the orchid's voice rang through her head. It was enough of a surprise that she faltered, almost halting in her tracks. She hadn't stopped moving since she'd left the tower's turbo lift. Whether that was ten minutes ago or half an hour, she didn't know. Time had become wildly subjective, a crazed and illogical sprawl, much like the landscape of the Academy itself. Sprinting down between the gray, partially collapsed buildings and ruined temples, she'd focused on putting as much distance as possible between herself and the tower. But every time she looked back, the tower seemed to be in a different place. Her head was swimming. She tried not to think about what had happened up there. But those thoughts kept seeping through her defenses like a cut that wouldn't stop bleeding. She saw the face of the boy. Was it a boy? As he'd crawled out of the cage and jumped at Scabros? The way he'd smelled, the noise that he'd made. He'd been like an animal, but far worse. Estizo. The orchid's voice cut in. Stop. Stay. Crouch. Zoe looked around. 
she was standing in front of an enormous statue of some ancient Sith lord that had fallen over on its side, so that the right half of its features had been worn smooth, abraded by decades of wind and snow. Sinking to her knees, she heard other voices, several of them talking among themselves from the far side of the monument. She peered over. A group of students was making their way down a walkway twenty meters in front of her. An older man, a master, she presumed, strode in front of them. His long gray hair was pulled back from his face in a single silver braid, accentuating the angular, hawk-like structure of his nose and forehead. The late afternoon light threw his shadow straight ahead across the crisp, freshly fallen snow, the black outline of his robe making it look as though he had wings. How many? The orchid murmured in her mind. How many, Estizo? She counted twelve, eighteen, twenty-four, and then looked again across a hillock of rock and ice where a second, much larger group of students had gathered with two or three other masters in attendance, the group too large to count. Apparently, some kind of outdoor assembly or group meditation was in progress. For a moment, Zoe just watched. Despite the fact that they walked together, some of them even talking among themselves in low voices, she had never seen a group of individuals so utterly detached from one another. When they exchanged glances, she saw only coldness in their eyes, as if they were sizing one another up, trying to find some advantage over the others. Attention! The master's voice was flinty and sharp. One hand upheld. Silence! The students down on the other side of the walkway fell silent, many of them drawing in closer to listen. For those of you who just arrived, I will explain this only once. The words were strident, rising up effortlessly over the windy terrain. Although in truth, I shouldn't have to explain it at all. Your own force sensitivity ought to be sufficient for you to realize that we're dealing with an unforeseen development at the Academy. A train of events that at this point is still unclear. He squared his shoulders and faced the group. Most of you have already detected a disturbance in the normal daily routine. At this point, we suspect that the Academy has been targeted by some form of sabotage and that it may have spread outward from the tower. Despite herself, Zoe found herself listening and as she did, she realized that the group of students had grown. Now, there appeared to be several hundred of them, perhaps the majority of the entire student body, all looking up in the master's direction. As a precaution, we are suspending all lessons and drills until further notice. Evening meal will be served as usual. Otherwise, you are to return to your dorms for private study and await further instructions. One of the masters will be in contact when our course of action changes. Zoe realized as she listened that she could hear a slight but unmistakable tremor of concern in the master's tone. He was doing everything he could to cover it up, and perhaps the students were fooled. But to her mind, he might as well have been wearing a placard. I'm doing my best to spin a situation that I have absolutely no ability to comprehend, let alone control, and... Hestizo! The orchid's voice was urgent, alarmed. Get down, now! 
She turned her head to the right and realized that one of the students at the edge of the group was staring straight at her. The student's name was Ranlaw. Like the rest of his classmates, he'd been feeling increasingly jumpy this entire afternoon, and he didn't know precisely why. It had affected his sparring performance earlier, and he was still angry about the black eye it had cost him. But something had gone wrong here at the academy. The force was telling him to watch his back, and the masters calling them to convocation only affirmed it. When he saw the girl looking at him from behind the statue, he'd stopped walking and gazed back at her, sensing that she had something to do with it. She's a Jedi. That realization was all it took. Ranlaw felt a bright spark of violence leap up in his chest. Whatever purpose the Jedi girl had for spying on them, he'd drag her to the Masters himself, and they could beat it out of her. The rest of the group was listening to Master Traan, no one noticing that Ranlaw had been looking the other way. That was fine with Ranlaw, who fully intended to get all the glory of this discovery. In a single leap, he sprang up over the fallen statue, tackling the girl and throwing her to the ground, pinning her by the wrists. She was easy prey, almost too easy. What's your business here, Jedi? She glared up at him, breathless and furious. Let me go. Right. Taking one hand off her wrist, he grabbed her hair and jerked her upright. Let's see what the masters have to say about you. Ranlaw rose to his feet, dragging her with him, and took in a breath to call down to the others. He was still in the process of inhaling when a clawed hand clamped down over his lips, silencing him. Ranlaw tried to squirm free, and the back of a wooden spear slammed down across the top of his skull with a sharp crack, dropping him sideways. Zoe saw the Sith student tumble forward, his grip falling slack, releasing her hair as she fell. In the place where he'd been hunched over, she saw a great three-fingered hand gripping her shoulder and forcing her back down out of sight, and she realized she was looking at Tulka. His shoulders were arched enough that she could see the quiver of arrows strapped to his back. Spinning the spear easily around, the whippet raised the business end again, swung it around, and thrust its point directly in Zoe's face, close enough that she could feel it pressing against her cheek. All this was accomplished in absolute silence. What are you doing? Tulka didn't budge. His expression was stone. There's something I need to show you. I don't... Move. The library was silent. To her knowledge... Kindra was the only student in the academy who came here on any kind of a regular basis. Without exception, it was the largest and oldest structure on Odesser Fauston, predating the tower itself, which also meant that it was in the worst condition. Centuries of hostile weather and shifting planetary tectonics had savaged its stacks, closing off entire chambers, stairways and corridors under tons of snow and ice. From within, it resembled nothing so much as a grand monument that had suffered a head-on collision with something even bigger than itself. 
crumpling it badly at both ends and the middle. She sat in the southwest wing, at one of the long stone tables under the cracked cathedral ceiling, staring at the most recent sections of Sith scrolls that she'd uncovered. The inscriptions were archaic, and she'd been working most of the afternoon on translating them. The process was slow but gratifying, yielding ancient secrets that she knew would only help her advance faster through the ranks of her fellow students. There were rumors that Darth Scabrus himself had come here, that he had found something, a relic of almost immeasurable power hidden in one of the secluded rooms. Whether that was true, an object like a Sith holocron wasn't outside the realm of possibility, Kendra had already found enough to make her research here worthwhile. She paused, her index finger marking a spot halfway through a long intaglio of etchings, and cocked her head slightly. Something was wrong. It wasn't as obvious as a noise or even a vibration, more like an intuitive sensation of disquiet that settled into her stomach and emanated out through her chest, as if millions of tiny cilia had extended from within her, shivering with unease. She stood up, the scrolls forgotten. Who's there? Her voice rang out in the emptiness, hollow and fading into silence. There was no reply, and a moment later she realized that she hadn't truly expected one. It wasn't that kind of feeling. It was more abstract, like a suddenly remembered nightmare whose full contents she couldn't quite summon up. What is that? What's happening? She drew a shaky breath... <sighs> not comprehending this inexplicable mutiny of her nervous system. Studying to be a Sith warrior was about engendering fear in others, not oneself. Yet her palms had begun to sweat and her heart was beating twice as hard as it normally did. All at once, she wanted to be out of here, in less confined quarters. She looked back at the tall staircase leading upward to the gallery and the concourse beyond it the one that would lead her out. She stuffed her notes into her bag, grabbed her cloak, and turned to go. From above her, the broken ceiling let out a long, creaking noise, and when she looked up, she saw one of those cracks splitting wider. Who is it? She said louder. Who's there? Now the chasms had spread open enough that she could see something stretching out inside them uncoiling in the ceiling's depths to expose a series of long, clutching branches. They forked downward, snake-like, showering bits of grit and rock as they insinuated farther through open space. A moment later, Kendra saw the great wooden face of the librarian, Annette, staring down at her. Daleless? She swallowed. "'managing to find her voice. "'What do you want?' "'Something unsettling you, Kendra!' "'His voice was thick and raspy. "'Some uncertainty of the mind, Jess?' "'No. "'The librarian didn't respond, "'just continued to slither his branches downward "'until the great bulk of his trunk "'dangled upside down in front of her.' 
the warty, centuries-old eyes narrowing with myopic consideration. Daleliss had been the curator of the library for as long as anyone could remember, perhaps going back a thousand years or more. Although his elaborate root system was permanently embedded somewhere deep in the foundation, a seemingly endless network of branches and limbs allowed him to slide unimpeded through its walls and hollows. Ironically, it was this constant writhing and squirming that undermined the infrastructure of the building itself. Rumor was that it would only be a matter of time before the netty brought the library down on top of him, sealing himself forever amid his own precious holdings. A fitting enough end, when Kindra thought about it. "'Feel it, too, I do,' he said at last." Yes, yes. I didn't say a branch grazed down past her face, fussing over the pile of scrolls, straightening and brushing off the ones that she'd left out. Didn't have to say anything. Written all over your face, yes. I don't know what you're talking about. Talking about the sickness out there in the wind? That brought her up short. What? In the wind, the netty repeated. Disease. Taste it. Feel it. Don't you... Kendra didn't want to linger here. A long, cryptic conversation with the tree was the last thing she was interested in at the moment. But she realized the netty had perfectly encapsulated her own feeling of unease. There was a sickness in the wind, some type of disease, and she could feel it. Under such circumstances, the direct approach seemed best. Do you know what it is? she asked. Ought not to venture out, the netty said, his branches clutching at the scrolls, beginning to roll them up with slow, deliberate movements. Safer here, Jess. If there's trouble, I can handle it. Not this kind. No, don't think so. Look. Kendra shook her head, increasingly irritated by the librarian's evasiveness. Either you have answers for me or you don't. Either way, I'm not going to stay in here and hide. Best course of action, I would say. She pointed at the scrolls. Leave those out for me. I'll be back for them later. Understand? I think it is Jew, Kindra, who does not understand. She shook her head. Whatever. The netty didn't argue, didn't say a word. Only gazed upon her with his sorrowful wooden stare as she mounted the steps and headed out. Ra'at opened his eyes slowly, as if afraid of what he might find. He didn't know how long he'd been sprawled out here unconscious at the bottom of the rock pile under the tower, but it was almost dark now, so several hours might have passed. 
A fine layer of snow had accumulated in the folds of his clothes. He was so cold that he almost couldn't feel it anymore, although the pain might have had something to do with that. His right arm throbbed terribly just below the shoulder. Touching it, running his hand under the torn sleeve, he drew back with a hiss. Live wires of raw tendon seared and shivered just beneath the skin. He probed again, more gingerly. The gash was deep, almost to the bone. He tried to lift his arm and discovered that it was virtually useless. The left one worked better, but his entire right side ached so badly when he moved that it wouldn't do him much good in a fight. Almost as bad, he had a sick disequilibrium in his stomach, like a heavy sandbag swinging back and forth at the end of a rope. Due to a concussion, maybe. He wondered how hard he'd smacked his head when he'd fallen. In an attempt to get reoriented, he cast his mind back to what had happened. The details of the attack rose reluctantly into his memory, like debris bobbing up from an underwater explosion, and after a moment he recalled it in detail. The thing that had fallen from the tower. The thing that had once been Wim Nichter. The other corpse, Jura Ostrogoth, was nowhere to be found. Ra'at wondered now with a sickish curiosity if maybe the Nictor thing might have eaten it. Whatever the case, he had never fought anything like Nictor's corpse. Its eye, dead and flat but gleaming with fierce hunger, mouth opened so wide that it had actually started splitting at the corners. In extremis, Ra'at's logical mind had bypassed the whole question of credibility. Disbelief wouldn't help him here. It would only slow him down, so he'd taken it at face value. Apparently, dead bodies were coming back to life, and this one wanted to eat him. He remembered how the Nictor thing had shrieked when it had first lunged at him, how he had reacted automatically, springing out of the way using the same accentuated force skills he'd been developing in Harakan's pain bunker. Up in the air, he'd grabbed hold of the overhanging rock slab of the structure behind him and swung himself on top of it, only then daring to look down. Using the resourcefulness that he'd been taught as part of his training, Raat had grabbed the biggest chunk of loose stone that he could lift. It must have weighed as much as he did and flung it over the edge. It was a direct hit, knocking the Nictor thing back down to the ground where it immediately shoved the stone away and started to climb again. If anything, it was clambering up faster, driven forward by unmistakable appetite. Already, Ra'at realized he couldn't stay up here indefinitely. He needed a better plan. Glancing around behind him, he spotted an even larger pile of rocks, the remains of a second level that had collapsed long before. He'd worked quickly but carefully, piling the slabs up, scraping his fingers and knuckles along the way until he had a tall, precarious stack that was staying upright only because he was holding onto it. Summoning the force, Rad had focused it on the pile and removed his hands. The rocks teetered but did not fall. Looking around, he saw the Nictor thing dragging itself up onto the overhang, its eye locked hungrily on Rad. Come on, then. 
Rat said, taking a single step away. Nictor charged, and Rat let the stones fall, slamming down on the corpse's leg just below the knee, pinning it there. The thing jerked and spasmed and screamed at him until Ra'at picked up another rock using his hands again and swung it down hard on Nictor's neck. There was a surprisingly loud and deeply satisfying crunch as its cervical spine shattered and the thing went limp. Taking no chances, Ra'at hoisted the rock a second time, intending to beat the thing's skull in with it. And that was when it jerked back to life, lashing out at him, hissing and screeching, coming within centimeters of biting his wrist. Jerking backward, Rat had lost his footing and plummeted backward off the overhang. After that, everything had gone black. Now, rubbing the back of his head, he wondered if the thing might still be on top of the overhang, crouched in the dark, waiting for him. He had no intention of finding out. What he needed now, more than anything else, was a trip to the infirmary where he could get the cut on his arm cleaned and treated and get his concussion checked out. A fleeting thought, what if it's too late, shot through his mind, and Ra'at shoved it aside, determined now more than ever to keep his wits about him. He knew a little bit about medicine, knew that the odds of herniating one's brain from a simple closed head injury were very long. Anyway, he certainly hadn't spent years here training and working to die from something like this. Clutching his arm, he began walking around the outer rim of the library's west wall. The pain wasn't as bad now as it had been just a few minutes earlier. Either his endorphins were kicking in, numbing the wound, or he was just getting used to it. He walked past the library, occasionally glancing up at the tower where the lights were on at the very top. A scratching sound came from somewhere off to his right, and he stopped and held his breath. Whoever's there, come out where I can see you. The figure stepped out, a dark-haired girl in an academy uniform. It was Kendra, he saw, one of the female students, maybe a year or two older than he was. Rat, she frowned. What happened to you? I'm fine. She took a step toward him. You're covered in blood. It's not as bad as it looks. That cut on your arm. Stay back. Whatever you say. Kendra's expression sharpened from bewilderment to active suspicion. But she didn't say anything, instead glancing right and left, head tilted, as if listening to the rest of the area. Ra'at found himself listening more actively, too. Within the last few moments, the darkness had thickened around them taking on additional depth and dimension, and the thin haze of light that escaped from inside the cracks in the library's walls was hardly a sufficient remedy. Rat's nauseated belly gave a queasy, volcanic shift, and this time it was followed by a moment of imbalance so sudden that he almost fell over. He had no idea whether Kindra noticed it or not, but he realized now that he could use her at least until they got to the infirmary, as a kind of insurance policy. She wouldn't fight to defend him, but together they might stand a better chance against whatever was out there. He would just have to be careful not to reveal how weak he truly was, and that meant coming up with a cover story to explain his injury. I was, uh, working out with Master Harakin, he said. I guess things got a little out of control. 
I got my bell rung. That's all. Kendra raised one eyebrow but still didn't respond. Where is everybody? Around. He shrugged, trying to act casual. I don't know. You sure you're... I'm fine, he repeated. But Harakin told me I should go to the infirmary and get checked out. You headed that way? She shook her head, seeming preoccupied. I'm going back to the dorm. Craning her neck, she looked all the way up to the top of the tower until Ra'at wondered if she might actually have seen the two bodies come spilling outward earlier and was putting the pieces together about what had really happened to his arm and his head. But in the end, all she said was, Something's wrong. Meaning what? I've got a bad feeling. It was an odd remark, he thought, uncharacteristically revealing, and not the sort of thing she'd ever shared with him before. They'd never really had any reason to talk. Immediately, Raat suspected that she was trying to gain his trust, to make him let his guard down. About what? I don't know, this night. Everything, you feel it? Nope. He shook his head, feigning an indifference that he didn't even remotely feel. Just another day in paradise, as far as I'm concerned. She didn't smile, didn't even seem to hear him. When the wind blew the hair back from her face, Raat saw that the corners of her mouth were pinched in a grimace. What's wrong? Whatever it is, she still didn't look at him. It's coming. Oh my goodness, part six was absolutely out of this world. I am totally obsessed with this journey through Red Harvest. It had so many crazy moments, I felt like I was a Wookiee wearing a jetpack with my butt on fire. But seriously, this story is beyond epic. The Old Republic is out of this world. And let me tell you, this particular story is bending my mind. I can't help but to get completely lost in this epic adventure, pulling back the layers and uncovering the secrets that make this universe so incredible. Honestly, I am super stoked to see what is waiting for us in the next part. But before we can get there, we gotta finish tackling this episode, which means it's time for the quote. And this quote comes to us from the opening of Season 3, Episode 7 of the animated series, The Clone Wars. It said, the future has many paths, choose wisely. This quote is like a compass guiding us through the crazy journey of life. So here's the deal. The future, which is all the awesome stuff that lies ahead. It's like a big open highway with tons of different roads. It's like being at those crossroads where we have the power to choose which path we want to take. Now choosing wisely doesn't mean stressing out about it and making the perfect decision. It means being thoughtful and making choices that align with our values, dreams, and goals. It's about considering the potential outcome of our choices and picking the path that will lead us closer to the kind of future that we want. Imagine you're standing at this crossroad and each path represents a different option. Some roads may seem easy and tempting, like taking a shortcut or going with the crowd. But remember, those roads may not lead us to the future we truly desire. On the other hand, there might be this road that seems challenging and less traveled. These roads require courage and sometimes taking risks, but they could lead to an amazing adventure, personal growth, and fulfilling your dreams. Choosing wisely means taking a step back and thinking about what truly matters to you. It's about considering your passions, values, and what brings you joy. Think about the kind of person you want to become and the goals that you want to achieve. Then choose the role that aligns with those things, and that role will lead you to what you desire. And I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I hope you will join me next time for more adventures in a galaxy far, far away. Until then, may the Force be with you.
Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. Thank you.